Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. If you missed Friday's show, we had a conversation with former Education Minister Thomas Lukasik about what the current Education Minister needs to do regarding LGBTQ guidelines and how to deal with the Catholic school boards. We also had a conversation with one of the co-authors of a new study that maintains there is a large ninth planet lurking on the outskirts of our solar system. You can listen to Kincaid and Breckenridge weekdays from 9.30 to 12.30 on Newstalk 770 and Newstalk770.com. All right, welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you, Roger Kincaid, uh, off for a few days. Some time for your calls later in this hour. One story we're watching, I mean, you heard in the news about the major, major snowstorm bearing down on the East Coast. Like Washington, D.C., for example, might get uh, 30 inches of snow. Here's the thing, and here's a story we're watching kind of part and partial to all of that. The NHL, as of now, has not canceled the game in Washington tonight between the, the Capitals and the Anaheim Ducks. Uh, everybody in Washington is being told, get ready, bear down, this is going to be bad. Who in their right mind is going to go to a hockey game tonight? On top of that, you got the, the Ducks that are supposed to then go to Detroit and play the Red Wings tomorrow. Uh, they might find themselves, A, playing in front of an empty building, and then B, being stuck in Washington, D.C. Uh, so the NHL, which just finally dealt with that whole John Scott All-Star game headache, now finds itself with an all-new headache in this weather situation here today. So we'll keep an eye on that. I want to turn our attention to, to the debate that's... Um, Certainly dominated a lot of the conversation in Alberta over the last week or so, and, and I don't know that this issue is going to be resolved anytime soon. Uh, the Alberta government has come out, of course, with, with guidelines, expectations for school boards in how they accommodate LGBTQ students, and in particular as it pertains to, to trans, transgendered students. Obviously, these have been not well received in all quarters. Uh, particularly amongst uh, Catholic educators, or more to the point, I guess, Catholic bishops. Calgary's Catholic bishop was first out of the gate uh, with an outright rejection of these guidelines. What seemed to me to be a pretty harsh response from from Calgary's bishop. Uh, Alberta's two other bishops since then have also come out against these guidelines, maybe with more nuanced responses, but nonetheless, opposition to these guidelines. Now, certainly we've heard from some Catholic educators, some Catholic school board trustees, that there is support for these guidelines, but maybe that's in the minority. So the education minister insisting the Catholic school boards sort it out, figure it out, get with the program, and the Catholic bishops coming out against these guidelines, it leaves these trustees in, in a tough spot. So if they don't go along with these guidelines, or they don't do so to the satisfaction of the education minister, what if anything is going to happen? That much is unclear. There's certainly been particular focus on the Catholic board in Edmonton, and, and even had the education minister uh, in recent days expressing his, expressing his dismay about the dysfunction of the Edmonton Catholic School Board. Would he step in and dissolve that board? In a weird way, that might play into the hands of the bishops, because there do seem to be trustees on the Edmonton Catholic Board who support these guidelines. If the bishops don't want it to happen, maybe they'd be just as happy seeing this board dissolved. But no easy answers. Uh, joining us on the line, though, someone uh, with some, some thoughts on all of this and someone who's certainly seen it from the other side, uh, Thomas Lukasik, a former Edmonton MLA and former education minister, had some very interesting thoughts in, in a blog post he wrote this week uh, on his Facebook page. Thomas, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Dave. Good morning to you. Well, we appreciate you uh, joining us here this morning. All right. Um, 
First of all, your thoughts on the timing of all of this. One of the points you made in, in your post this week was that maybe the education minister didn't need to move on this just yet. Well, the minister is overall doing the right thing. There's a piece of legislation that we knew as Bill 10 that passed uh, that requires of all school boards to amend their policies and, and become more accommodating and, and more welcoming uh, of LGBTQ uh, children in our system. And in order to do that, uh, all school boards had to develop their own standalone policies, but it was a cumbersome process. Um, Edmonton Public uh, School Board um, it was probably an example of, of how dysfunctional this process can get. So the minister put himself, and probably somewhat unwittingly, in a, in a very unenviable position because he de facto drafted guidelines for them and said, here is what I expect, now put it in your own words, and you have till March 31st to do so. So he gave him an unequivocal deadline. Well, we're getting close to this deadline right now, and and there is one uh, school board, as you know, that's outright uh, defying it, being Edmonton uh, Catholic school board. But but I'm sure others will have similar difficulties. But in the midst of that, you have uh, two bishops, um, a leader in, in the clergy, also in Edmonton, uh, Father Pena, who has been advising the Edmonton Catholic school board. Uh, came out with letters, and and now Archbishop um, uh, of the diocese here in Edmonton came out with uh, with commentary. That's not very enviable. So these these school boards are caught between a rock and a hard place. Yeah, they are. Um, now there there were there seem to be some trustees in Edmonton anyway, from what I've seen, that that do support these guidelines. Is that right? That's correct. There are two trustees uh, that have been very outspoken. Uh, and, and feel that basically Bill 10 should be implemented into school boards and, and they have no issues uh, with, uh, with the policies that were issued by, um, by the minister. And, and hence comes in the archbishop and in a, in a, in a very well-written letter almost says to the minister, you know, you have a couple of trustees that are causing you a headache. They're, they're not aligning themselves with the rest of the trustees. Perhaps they're even breaking the code of conduct. Um, of being a trustee, um, you have a de facto permission to dissolve that board. It perhaps uh, would be a solution for for the minister, but that's assuming that this is the only board that's going to defy his guidelines. I think there may be more, Uh, but also it would quiet down the two trustees who actually uh, should be commended for the work that they have been doing. Uh, They they are trying to protect these LBGDQ kids and and, and implement the policies as they should be implemented. So the minister is in a tough position because he has a deadline. Uh, What will he do after the deadline passes? What will he do on April? April 1st. Uh, will he just give him more time? Um, that would be unacceptable. Will he step in and override and, and sign a ministerial order and, and just superimpose his policies onto other school boards? That will fly in the face of, of him being very supportive of local economy and, and local decision making. Um, will he uh, wage a war against the Catholic Church and the bishops and the archbishop? I'm not sure, and and that's what happens when you, when you perhaps release policies before you are confident that they will be well adopted, and and when you set deadlines and you really don't have a plan of what you're going to do after that deadline passes. That some might call your bluff, essentially. 
Well, that's it's, it's a game of poker right now, and and the stakes are really high because uh, number one, we're dealing with a very vulnerable population of children, uh, with some of the highest suicide um, rates in in Canada and, and throughout the world. They do need this protection. There's one child in particular that we're dealing with in Edmonton, um, and a mother who who demands that the law be implemented because there's a law in the books that the government currently is not implementing. But at the same time, there is a a growing chorus of uh, Albertans who are saying, why are we having two separate public, publicly funded education systems? Uh, why is there publicly funded Catholic uh, system? Only three provinces in Canada have it. So now this is almost morphing into a debate on the merit of Catholic education. And and that is definitely not the kind of a conversation that the minister wanted to get into, uh, but he found himself right in the middle of it. Yeah, you're right. I don't know that that's a, a battle that this government wants to take on because we get into some some uh, constitutional issues that go way back. And look, you, you're coming at this as someone who has been education minister and appreciates the importance of public education, but also appreciates the importance of, of Catholic education. Well, I do. I am Catholic, and, and I'm a teacher. My, my children currently are in a Catholic school system, and I have always been supportive of the choices uh, that are given to parents in, in uh, Alberta, from private to charter to homeschooling to Catholic, and, and, and you name it. Uh, but that does not absolve any school system from uh, implementing uh, Alberta's laws, and, and, and particularly human rights legislation. So so uh, Catholic school boards over here are challenging the minister um, to push him a little harder, and, and I think, uh, as you mentioned earlier, it's a bit of a poker game. Uh, they, they, they're calling a bluff. They don't think that the minister will push him on it. At this point in time, the minister really has one viable choice. If by April 31st, all school boards don't adopt his policies, and they must come very close uh, because he's been very clear that he will not settle for anything less than what he released. And that is basically sign a ministerial order and make and mandate, mandate them provincially uh, uh, for all school boards. Uh, school boards won't be happy with this, uh, but this in a way would make that issue go away. And then if uh, Catholic school boards are not satisfied with that, then they can challenge the minister in court vis-a-vis uh, -vis his jurisdiction. To, to do so. Can anything good come from, from dissolving these boards? Uh, it just seems to me that, as you say, I, I don't know that it's going to advance the issue any further. If the bishops are still opposed to these guidelines, whenever new board comes in, might just might just take on the, the same position. I don't know how it helps the minister advance advance his cause. Well, I don't think in this case anything good would happen because you would actually silence the two trustees that are doing um, their work. They read the policies, they agree with the policies, they know that the policies are aligned with legislation and Human Rights Act, and, and they're telling their Catholic uh, trustee colleagues, uh, look, um, our number one fiduciary duty is, is to children and their safety. Our number second duty is to Alberta and, and to Alberta legislation. And then lastly, um, we take into consideration our Catholicism. Um, we must be driven by, by the first two uh, primarily. And if he was to dissolve, the minister was to dissolve the board, you would end up silencing those two very outspoken uh, trustees. And that would not serve uh, our LGBTQ kids in that particular school board well. The second problem would be that he would have to appoint uh, an administrator for that school board. That's very disruptive to the operation of the school board. And lastly, there would have to be a by-election. And I imagine this would be a very, uh, very 
contested by election because uh, in this case, um, as as um, the community is polarized along this issue, you would you'd see a whole bunch of trustees running either for or against this policy. And that's not how you want to elect trustees. Uh, you don't want single issue trustees, and, and and probably with some significant interference from the church at this point in time, because uh, each side will want to stack uh, their sides with trustees. So, uh, my suggestion to the minister would be, and I found myself once in a in a very similar uh, position with with a Catholic school board here in Alberta, is to is to do the hard thing, and and it's it's sort of like ripping off a bandaid. It'll hurt for two three days, but in the long run, it'll pay dividends, and and that simply on March 31st, uh, if there isn't full compliance, just sign it into a provincial policy um, and, and do the right thing by the children. Thomas, stand by if you can. We'll take a break here. We're going to come back. I want to get to the point of how this can all be addressed. Is there a way, a middle ground in all of this where the minister can feel as though his guidelines uh, are being more or less adhered to, but that Catholic boards can feel as though they're, they're doing so in, in keeping with their beliefs? Uh, Thomas Lukasik is on the line with us, uh, former education minister, former Edmonton uh, MLA. My name is Rob Breckenridge. This is Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. All right, it's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. I'm Rob. Roger. Well, Roger ain't here. We got some uh, open line time coming up after 11 th- or 10:30, rather. But uh, continue our conversation here with former education minister Thomas Lukasik talking about these proposed guidelines for for school boards. Thomas, part of this becomes almost a, a theological question, as you say. There are Catholic trustees who, who don't see this as as being in conflict with their beliefs. Does it need to be? Is is there an inherent conflict here? Well, you know, I, I cannot obviously override the interpretation of theology, uh, but. It, furthered by the archbishop and two bishops. But I can tell you on a practical level, as a, as a parent of two kids in, in Catholic schools, um, as, a, as a former teacher, uh, and, and, and being quite active within the Catholic community to, to some degree, this is not an issue among rank-and-file Catholic parishioners. Um, in every school uh, in Alberta, there are children that are gay, there are children that are transgender, and, and, and the list goes on and on. And they're embraced, adopted. Teachers treat them uh, very well and accommodate them any way they can. And it really isn't a day-to-day issue. The problem is that there are those situations where those kids don't have any adult parental support, where they can't go home to mom and dad and um, and, and and open up to them. And, and there are some administrators or, or perhaps teachers that don't feel comfortable with this uh, situation. And, and there must be a set of policies put in place on how to deal and how to create welcoming spaces for those children. But but overall, uh, in a Catholic community, it isn't an issue. But but this is an issue of uh, of uh, of uh, almost a power struggle between the minister and and the hierarchy of the church of over who dictates policies on moral issues within Catholic schools. And in my opinion, rightfully so, uh, the minister says, ultimately, the buck stops with me. We pay for these schools. These are public schools, and you will adhere to Alberta laws. And bishops are coming out and are saying, no, no, 
um, we have jurisdiction over over some of the uh, mores on on morality uh, within Catholic schools. So perhaps to a large degree, this is really not a an LGBTQ policy issue, but it's a larger issue of finally determining who is in charge of those schools. Yeah, that's well, an interesting question. I mean, it, if if Catholic trustees are, are simply there to, to do what the bishop tells them to do, what, what's the point of, of the elections in the first place? Well, they find themselves in a very uncomfortable position because um, you will find that uh, church is not contributing financially at all to the operations of Catholic schools in Alberta, but church plays a very active and very visible role. Uh, you go to any Catholic school board meeting and you will find the priests in attendance, um, either participating or over, overviewing the proceedings of, of board meetings. Uh, you will find um, uh, bishops and archbishops very active with trustees and, and development of policies. Uh, when when Catholic school boards do community consultations on issues, uh, clergy is always involved in that. So there is that very strong interplay. Uh, and and uh, frankly, during even trustee elections, uh, what is said by priests in church uh, to a large degree affects uh, how voters vote. So those trustees are often uh, between a rock and a hard place. And, and, and now we have a situation um, where they have to make some uh, black and white decisions. Now, going back to the policies, uh, the minister issued policies that, that to some degree may be considered provocative um, to some in the Catholic community. Um, he, he left very little to interpretation for school boards. Uh, he, he very well defined Bill 10, and even though personally I find very few issues with those policies, uh, on some aspects maybe he has gone a little bit overboard, but, but nothing to, uh, to raise any concerns over. Um, some of the trustees may find it difficult to, to implement them verbatim. Uh, from his from his guidelines, and also he you know he he came out and he says I am not imposing these policies. I want boards to develop their own. These are the guidelines, but you better get very close to these guidelines. So trustees, rightfully so, are asking themselves, well, do we really have a free will? Do we really get to draft our own guidelines when he already has drafted for us a set, and he wants us to come very close to them? So. Now you have uh, a, a rough draft of what the guidelines are to look like. You have a deadline, and uh, and the minister pretty well cornered himself in the eventuality that one of the school boards or more uh, decide not to comply. In terms of, of how this, this works in practice, I know, as I understand, there, there are some Edmonton public schools that, that more or less have these kinds of guidelines in place. I mean, we're certainly hearing a, a lot of opposition outside of the you know, the, the Catholic objections to this, that somehow this this um, creates problems for, for girls, either in, in, in washrooms or in change rooms, and, and we're going to create new problems by doing this. I, I think we're losing sight of, of who we're trying to help here, but do, do these need to be problematic? Are they really problematic? Not really. First of all, we really did not need the guidelines from the minister. Edmonton Public School Board and some six or seven others have developed guidelines of their own uh, that meet or exceed his guidelines without any help prior to him issuing um, his his guidelines. So uh, if he simply allowed the school board to develop their guidelines, and then if there were some that did not meet 
the test of Bill 10, uh, then work with them and, and adjust them accordingly, this wouldn't be a big issue. But when you have a minister coming up front uh, with a set of suggested guidelines and, and, and telling boards that they better come close to it, that's where the power struggle begins, and, and that's where they start pushing back. Um, as to the guidelines creating problems, no, frankly, there aren't problems. Uh, if you have a transgender child and the child identifies uh, himself or herself as a, as a boy and girl, and it is not a situation that a child wakes up in the morning and says, uh, mom or teacher, from now on I'm a girl, there ha- there's a medical test uh, diagnosis that has to be done. It's not something that's very whimsical. Um, then, then that child should be accommodated accordingly. But unfortunately, in Edmonton for a while, we had a situation where this little girl was struggling. Um, and even though teachers tried to accommodate her best that they could, it was all ad hoc. Uh, different teachers had different approaches. Different principals had different approaches. So finally came a time where some sets of standards had to be put in place. I know it's, it's for some it's difficult to accept. Uh, there is there is a lot of provocative uh, uh, conversations going on, particularly in social media. There are those who, who 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 simply like to aggravate the situation. But at the end of the day, we're dealing here with children um, who want to go about their days and and uh, be protected from bullying and be able to uh, go to the washroom and, and be simply recognized for who they are. Um, and, and, and there are laws in place to protect them, but now all we have to do is put those laws into practice, and, and, and that seems to be the problem. Yeah, Excellent points. Uh, Thomas, we'll see where this all goes from here. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Well, much appreciated. You. Take care. Thank you very much. All right. Good care. Bye-bye. Too. Thomas Lukasik, uh, former MLA, former education minister, uh, with some thoughts on where the current education minister has, has put himself, and, and I do think he's put himself in a position where you know, some school boards maybe feel as though they, they can and will call his bluff. And they come April 1st, and they'll come back and say, well, okay, this is kind of where we think we can go, but we're not going to go as far as you think we should go. And what are you going to do about it? And I think he's in a real tough spot. He came on this program, the education minister, that is, came on this program and said, look, we're not imposing anything on anybody. These are not mandatory guidelines. This is the Alberta government expressing its belief on what those guidelines should be. Boards are to develop policies, and this is to serve as a basis for those policies. And he has as much as said that not every policy is going to look the same. But what does that mean in practice? What does it mean when individual boards are given some leeway or given the opportunity to do things their own way? There's some uncertainty around that. And if the minister is going to come in and just start dissolving boards, I, I, that's just going to make the whole thing that much more contentious. And it may backfire in some ways, because as Thomas Lukasik said, right now on the Edmonton Catholic Board, you've got trustees who support the guidelines. And maybe that's why the, the archbishop is saying, well, you know what, maybe go ahead and dissolve that, that board. So he's in a tough spot, clearly. Listen, we're going to take a break here. We're going to come back. Certainly we can talk more about this, more about the pipelines issue. 974-8255 is a number. Text us as well, 770-770. This is Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. Never boring, rarely the same. Always ready to hear from you. Roger Kincaid and Rob Breckenridge on News Talk 770, Calgary's breaking news and conversation station.
All right, welcome to this hour of the program. It's Kincaid and Brickenridge on News Talk 770. Uh, I'm Rob Rogers, uh, off for a few days. Uh, Daniel Smith is back on Monday, but uh, that means uh, Andrew Lawton's uh, sitting in. He'll be in from 1 to 3 this afternoon, so we'll go until uh, 1 o'clock today, and we've got a lot more to get to. Later in this hour, you might have heard about this, this case. Certainly, there have been a lot of people who have been following this very closely. But a verdict today in a, a landmark Twitter harassment trial, which... I don't know if people follow this whole Gamergate debate, and apparently this this uh, certainly overlaps with that. But I think there's some important issues around free speech and the Internet and social media that this case raises. We're going to hear from the Canadian Civil Liberties Association after 1130. Talk about this this ruling today and what it means and where those lines are. Uh, but off the top in this hour, uh, a fascinating story that's getting a lot of attention in, in part, I think, because, you know, ideas about Planet X have always seemed to be kind of on the fringes. And I think most people just assume, look, we know the planets that are there. Hell, we're finding planets uh, and, and other solar systems, other galaxies. So we should have a pretty good idea of what planets are in our own, own neighborhood. So the notion that there was uh, a hidden planet in our own solar system, you know, for those reasons, seems kind of far-fetched. But maybe not so. In fact, new research published makes a pretty convincing link that there is a planet nine, that there is a rather large planet lurking on the outskirts, the far outskirts of our solar system. So how do we know it's there? Why haven't we spotted it before? And what are the implications of this? Well, joining us to talk more about it is uh, one of the co-authors of this study, Constantine Batigan is an assistant professor of planetary science at uh, California Institute of Technology. Uh, Constantine, I hope I, I said your name right, and uh, thanks for joining us here today. Oh, thank you for having me. All right. So, first of all, you know the the obvious questions that come up, and I'm sure you've you've dealt with them. That if there's a planet out there past Pluto, which technically isn't a planet, but we sort of think of that as the outskirts of our solar system, there's another planet lurking out there. Why why haven't we spotted it? Well. You see, it's uh, it's a little bit like uh, like looking for a light bulb on the surface of the moon, right? This this planet is is exceptionally far away, and it gets really progressively more difficult as we uh, you know explore further and further uh, into the outskirts of the solar system to discover things that are that are effectively very dim. Um, so what we need to discover this planet astronomically. Right, to see the reflected light uh, that that has traveled from the sun and reflected off of the surface and, and falls back down on a terrestrial telescope, we we first need a roadmap, and that's what our study has provided. So there's a big difference between you know staring off at a distant star and and detecting the planets that go around that star, and and versus detecting this kind of a planet way on the outside of our own solar system. Well, so interestingly, it is it is substantially easier to to detect some planets around other stars than uh, a planet such as the one that for which we have found evidence in the outer solar system. The reason being that when we talk about detections of planets around other stars, all of such detections are actually indirect. We never see the planet itself. We only see the gravitational wobble that the planet induces on its host star. So we're only really observing the motion 
of the star. In our study, what we have found is a, is a gravitational signature of Planet Nine that it exerts on distant uh, so-called Kuiper Belt objects, these, these uh, icy, icy rocks that lurk beyond the orbit of Pluto. Would it be possible? Let's assume this planet's there. Would it be possible to, to see it? Absolutely. In fact, we, we have ongoing efforts uh, to, to detect Planet Nine uh, with my uh, colleague and, and co-author Mike Brown. Um, it is, it's not easy. Uh, it does require the use of, of one of the largest telescopes available uh, on Earth, the Subaru Telescope. Um, but it is possible, and, and importantly, we now know where to look. You see, through mathematical modeling uh, of, of the, of understanding and understanding the gravitational signature of this planet, we can obtain its orbit. And once we know its orbit, we no longer have to search the entire sky uh, to find this very, very dim object. We, we sort of have a direction into which we point the telescope and, and look for it. So what are we detecting so far? What's led you to conclude that, that it's there and we have some idea of its size, of its orbit? How are we figuring all of this out then? So the, the primary line of evidence is that if you, um, if you say, were to uh, you know, get in a spaceship and, and fly on top of the solar system and, and look down at it, uh, what you would note is that the most distant debris that uh, that exists in this in the so-called Kuiper Belt, the region beyond the orbit of uh, Pluto, uh, rather the orbit of Neptune. Excuse me. Uh, you you notice that all of these orbits are kind of oriented the same way. They're they're physically aligned in space. All of the all of the orbits swing out into the same direction. Now that's that's anomalous. That should not happen. And in fact, if you were to take such a configuration and then just leave it alone, only under the influence of the sun and the planets that we know of, it would become randomized over timescales much shorter than the age of the Earth. So in effect, what we're seeing is that there, some object is gravitationally exerting a torque, which is, which is maintaining the alignment of the orbits. So for something to generate that much torque, as you call it, it would have to be a, a fairly large planet. Indeed, indeed. So our computer models uh, that, we, that we use to, uh, to put a handle on what's going on in the outer solar system can, in, in effect, give us two pieces of information. They can give us the, the mass of the planet, which uh, in our case amounts to about 10 Earth masses, and an orbit. And the orbit of this object is very, very expansive. So, uh, you know, at its closest approach to the sun, it swings in at around 250 times the distance between the sun and the earth. And at its furthest approach, it's at about a thousand. So you see the, the closest planet that we, we have detected, right? Uh, which is, which is Neptune, which was detected back in 1846 is at 30, um, 30 times the distance between the Earth and the Sun. And, and Pluto, uh, because of its very small size, was a challenge to detect. So it wasn't detected until 1930, uh, you know, and that's, that's sitting at 40. Our planet is sitting at 1,000. It's so far away that it's very, very dim. 
Now, it's got quite a, an interesting orbit then. For one thing, it's, it's as I understand it, a, a massive orbit. I mean, it would take about 22,000 years for it to get around the sun. Is that right? That, that's right. But interestingly, um, you know, you mentioned planets around other stars uh, that we have detected over the last 20 years or so. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, this planet, Planet 9, would fit much better into the context of sort of the galactic planetary album uh, than it does into our solar system. You see, there's kind of building evidence that the solar system is more or less an oddball. Our nicely kind of configured circular orbits are kind of an exception uh, on a galactic scale. Most stars have, uh, have planets, uh, giant planets, that are on very eccentric orbits, much like the one that we're uh, calculating for Planet Nine. Now, how does its orbit, I mean, besides the fact that it's a very long orbit, how does it compare with the orbit of the other planets? Well, uh, to to give you a scale, uh, Jupiter, the kind of big player of, in our solar system, goes around the sun once every 12 years, right? So, and, and Jupiter, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of far away. I mean, you can spot it in, in the sky with the naked eye and it's bright, but it kind of just looks like one of the stars. And this thing goes around the sun once every 20,000 years, and it is approximately 30 times uh, smaller in terms of mass than Jupiter. Does that still fall within the range of what we'd expect? I mean, we understand that we orbit the sun because of, of the sun's gravity, that it would have that reach, that, that planets could be that far away from the star, could have that much of an orbit and, and still be a, a part of the solar system? Yeah, so, so uh, that's an excellent question. The sun's gravitational pull really, uh, really begins to, to subside and, and give, uh, give way to the gravitational influence of other nearby stars at about, uh, you know, 100,000 to a million uh, astronomical units, meaning 100,000 to a million times the distance between the Earth and the Sun. I mean, this, uh, this object residing at, at a thousand is still well within the gravitational influence of the Sun. There's no problem there. Um, you know, it's, it's a funny thing. We, we kind of have, uh, I think the, the reason that we find this to be so, so exotic is that is largely because we're kind of used to thinking of our solar system as a baseline kind of default way that that planetary systems occur in nature mm-hmm. as it turns out it's not and and this uh distant planet on this very exotic orbit might be our link to the extrasolar world so well i mean and then hypothetically is it possible that there would be even other planets beyond that in our solar system or would this mark the outer edge well you know it's uh so history shows us that it's never a good idea to kind of declare that we have reached the end of the solar system. Every time uh, scientists have done that, they had, they had been consistently wrong because something new had eventually been discovered. So it, it's certainly not implausible that there are additional objects in the solar system. But um, so far, we have zero evidence for other bodies, uh, you know, bodies other than Planet Nine. Mm-hmm. We have kind of you know, I think uh, pretty pretty convincing gravitational evidence that 
there is this uh, planetary object lurking uh, far away. There is no evidence that there are additional bodies. So what's the next step then in confirming this, this evidence? So the next step is is really to go detect it astronomically, and that is a search that we are taking part in, uh, as well as some of our some of our colleagues who don't work directly with us, but are uh, are also looking uh, sort of you know are on the hunt, uh, as well as more theoretical refinement of the prediction of its orbit. There's you know what we've taken here is maybe the first, maybe the most dramatic, but nevertheless the first step in understanding what the orbit of Planet Nine looks like. We now need to refine our predictions and find it. Because obviously then, given the size of this orbit, there are going to be better opportunities to, to, to detect it and to get a look at it, but that means figuring out where it is and where it is in its orbit, right? That's right. So, so where it is in its orbit is the most difficult thing to figure out. Uh, you know, as a historical note, it's interesting, uh, you know, Neptune was actually detected, uh, was discovered in the same way. It was first calculated mathematically through the gravitational influence that it exerts on Uranus and then subsequently observed through a telescope. So, so Neptune was also predicted before it was observed. But in case of Neptune, or there was, ironically, a little bit more data to play with because uh, Neptune goes around the sun on a much smaller time scale, uh, sort of time scale of order a century. So there was there was a basically a movie of of its orbit uh, made by the time uh, mathematicians in the mid 1800s started the calculation. In our case, all we have is a snapshot. All we have is a frame because orbital clocks run very slowly far away from the sun. So, so we're, in some sense, data limited, and which is why we haven't been able to, we need to do more work to predict its location in its orbit. Uh, what's the reaction been like from, from others in, in, in your community, uh, amongst other uh, astronomers, etc.? So I would say that, uh, you know, it has been predominantly very positive. Uh, there has also been, uh, you know, a healthy dose of skepticism, which, which I think is perfectly fine. I, I welcome that. You know, scientists should be skeptical. Um, what I hope is that as, as the people uh, kind of study, uh, you know, our paper in more detail and hopefully maybe even reproduce some of our results using their own uh, theoretical models that this becomes uh, this becomes grounds for for more observational search time dedicated to to the quest to you know discover planet nine. You know it's funny too because I, I said in the introduction right there have long been theories about planet X and the, this sort of thing and uh, you know doomsday theories associated with that etc. Just your your thoughts on whether this you know, how this this matches up with, with other theories that have existed about other planets. So, uh, you know, when it comes to doomsday theories, I mean, this is just completely unrelated, right? You really have to go well, well beyond the orbit of Neptune to find any gravitational hints of this planet, which is why we're only seeing them now. 
so, so you know, this thing, if, if this planet was going to, to have any effect on us at all, then Neptune would have destroyed us all, you know, a long time ago. <laughs> so, so, so that's kind of one, one angle. Uh, when it comes to predictions, of, uh, other predictions made about Planet X, um, you know, it's, it's a fascinating, there's a fascinating history there. As I already mentioned earlier, uh, Neptune was calculated before it was, it was found observationally, right? Right. And because that was such a success, it was such a success of matching up theory with astronomical observation that numerous uh, scientists subsequently tried to, to basically do the same trick with Neptune. Look for irregularities in Neptune's orbit to predict planets beyond Neptune. Now, as it turns out, all of those calculations were, were wrong because they were, uh, they were based on a theoretical model where the mass of Neptune was, was incorrect. I mean, a hundred years ago, which is roughly when, uh, to what time these models date back, we really didn't have a good idea of, of how massive Neptune and Uranus were. Today, we have, you know, the room for error has basically disappeared in, in the parameters. We've sent spacecraft to every planet in the solar system. We know its parameters. Uh, the only kind of, the only limitation now is our own capability. Well, yeah. I mean, as you mentioned, we just got the uh, the, the images of Pluto recently. Could could this same? Is there any chance? I guess it's still a long way to go to to this to this new planet. Is there any chance then that uh, we we could we could use those probes to to get images of this planet? Uh, so we certainly would not uh, would not be able to use the same probes because um, Pluto is actually on the other side of the solar system. So even if you keep flying the New Horizons probe, uh, you know far away and you're getting further away. solar system you're <laughs> yeah you're getting further away <laughs> well, that's um, you know that's right that's right and but you know th- this isn't this is an exciting thing to think about right because uh you know even this even though this object is really really far away you now space travel technology is getting much much better and we are um, you know we're you know i i would be I would be absolutely stoked to learn that, uh, you know, there is indeed such a planet and, you know, to, uh, that, you know, there would be sufficient interest to send a, a probe, take a, take a picture of its surface and, uh, and be puzzled by it, just like we're puzzling over the uh, surfaces of virtually every other planet in the solar system. And, and let me just ask you this in closing. I mean, is it possible that, that we've previously captured images of this through other telescopes and just not realized it. So uh, we are actually at the moment uh, conducting a search for, for that exact problem, right? because it, when it comes to every other planet, once it was discovered, it was later realized that it had been captured previously. So we are looking through archival data as well as gathering new data to try and understand if if this planet is has already been seen. Fascinating stuff. Uh, Professor Badigan, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. All right. Thank you very much. Take care. That's uh, Constantine Badigan, Assistant uh, Professor of Planetary Science of the Division of Geological and Planetary Science at the California Institute of Technology, the co-author of this research. that's getting so much attention. Uh, we'll take a break here. We'll come back. A few more thoughts uh, on this. We'll set up our next segment for you, too. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770.
Last couple of minutes here before the bottom of the hour. 974-8255 is a telephone number. You can text us as well, 770-770. Uh, yeah, I, I think this stuff about uh, Planet... I, I'd rather call it Planet X. I guess we're calling it Planet 9 because of this whole Pluto thing. Because Planet X just sounds cool, sounds mysterious, but obviously X means 10 and, and it just all fits together. So that, that's, that's too bad. So anyway, Planet 9. I, I like this text, though. So someone here says they, they should rename it in honor of uh, David Bowie and Ziggy Stardust. There's uh, some guy on Twitter who I think has, you know, like 800 followers. Got about 20,000 retweets. I forget exactly how the, treat was, uh, the tweet was worded, but essentially along the lines of, oh, really? So we, we lose David Bowie and all of a sudden we find a new planet? And I don't know what's going on here. Although someone else suggests we call it Nibiru. Nibiru? Nibiru? Which is the name that was, uh, I guess, previously given to that uh, the doomsday theory planet. That Earth was going to collide with Planet X or Nibiru and it was going to be a disaster and it was all going to happen in 2012 and it was going to be bad. But um, now that didn't happen. But it is odd, I guess. And that's what seems counterintuitive about it. That, that we are finding planets that are light years away from Earth, that orbit other stars. And we've got one right here in our, our backyard that's been under our nose the whole time. It seems counterintuitive. I guess the problem is when you're looking toward the star, it's easier to notice the planet going past it. When you're looking away from the star, I guess it makes it harder. But they believe it, it can be found. The first step is, is detecting, detecting the evidence of it, identifying what we think its orbit to be. And then, like it says with Neptune, where the observations followed from, from the other evidence. And that could be the case here. But yeah, how do we name this? That's, that's an interesting question.